You're listening to the Is This Odd Dr. Todd program from Los Angeles Magazine Studios, the show where you can get all your medical questions answered without an office visit. Please welcome comedy writer Dimitri Pappas and family medicine physician Dr. Todd Spector. Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Odd? What's your name? Dr. Todd. That's right. Is this odd, Dr. Todd? I'm Dimitri, and that is obviously Dr. Todd. <clears throat> um, we're back. Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right into this, Dr. Todd. Sure. The, the feedback continues, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have been getting, uh, people have been reaching out saying that they're enjoying it. Same thing. I'm not going to go through the whole laundry list of stuff, mm-hmm. but people are listening and people are enjoying it. They're getting information and they're being amused. I go will ahead. say it does have a, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Can you hear me? Yeah. Does that make okay, you happy? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you heard from any patients? Have I have. No, I've not heard from any patients who have been listening. I have heard from a bunch of people. One of the pieces of feedback that I got that was pretty funny was I was illustrating something by gesticulating with my hands to create a shape. And they were not able to visualize what I was doing. So I'm going to try when I'm using my hands to 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 show something to also explain it. That's a piece of feedback. My wife also told me she thought I was getting funnier. So I'm, <laughs> I feel good about that. Well, now I'm upset. My wife hasn't told me I'm, I'm sounding more intelligent. <laughs> well, they say that your spouse is always your toughest critic. And that is true. My spouse is the toughest critic of you. Uh, of me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I, like I will say spouse. it does have, it does have drawbacks that people that some people are listening to because I got a text um, from my mom. And she said, enjoying the podcast. I said, great. She <laughs> said, I listened, I listened to it. And, and, and I said, which one did you listen to? And she said, the semen swallowing one. <laughs> so, I mean, of all the, the podcasts you could have listened to, and of all the, the we had five questions a, a, an episode, right? Mm-hmm. And of all the things she that's she has to make it sound like it like it's uh like it's a jackass show, right? Like we're doing pranks with semen, right. the semen swallowing one. It's like, well, well you know, that's like the stuff that people for whatever reason they're just like they love it. They just want to talk about it and think about it okay. and <laughs> laugh about it. It's like it's like potty jokes it. for adults. Yeah, I don't I don't know that that's what my mom was doing though. I think that's just I think she just remembered that and that that was the example she gave whatever and I'm not going to I'm going to stop talking now because it's just getting worse and worse. But <laughs> yes, so there you know, listen, I'm thankful for everybody that's listening and everyone that's getting something from it and the people that are sending in questions. We got more audio questions today. Um and we we've had questions coming in and they're they're great. They I appreciate we both. I'm going to speak for you Dr. Todd. Yeah. I don't know if your nurse is allowed to do this. I'm not sure if you consider me your nurse or your co-captain, whatever the hell a, a surgeon has or a doctor has. But we are very grateful to everyone that's listening and participating, and and we hope it continues to grow because it yeah. feels good. It does. Yeah, I, I don't. I hope your mom doesn't take that the wrong way. I was speaking more to the the general people. People in general love to ask questions about things like semen swallowing, and they're not your not necessarily your mom, but yeah. No, you, I said, she, my mom said she listened to the semen swallow and you said, yes, people love that. So listen, how else is she going to take that? <laughs> we probably just lost a listener and right. actually for my sake, it's probably better. And your mom is like, oh God. <laughs> She's I, like, I, I want to see Dr. Todd's credentials. I, even, I don't even think I've sent it to my mom yet. I need to I do hadn't. that. 
I hadn't. My sisters did. I, there was that one episode. I said something about how your sister complimented you and mine didn't. And I immediately got uh, texts from my sisters. And then they, and I think one was listening in the car. They were driving my mom somewhere and they listened to it in the car. So there to let me, tell anyway. fun, let me just tell you one funny anecdote about moms that I, that this reminded me of that when I was in right after college, um, this was in the early nineties and I was in New York and I went to the Museum of Contemporary Art and they had a retrospective about Robert Maplethorpe, the photographer. And he had two different types of photographs. He photographed flowers. Well, he had three and then he did portraits and then he did a lot of very erotic photos, particularly of men. And um, he had a, he had a number of photography books. So I had mentioned to my mom that I had been at this exhibit and I loved it. And so then I, I can't remember which holiday it was, Hanukkah or a birthday or whatever it was. And she was like, oh, you know, I remember that Todd went this, loved this exhibit. So she went to the bookstore and, and said, hey, my son, he, he went to this guy, Robert, someone or another, maple something, maple syrup. And they're like, oh, Maplethorpe. And uh, yeah, we've got some of his books. So they bring my mom over and they hand her one of her books of these erotic images, particularly of men. And so my mom's like, oh, cool. Okay. I, this is what he's into. And she buys me this book. For How old were you at this point? I was like 22 or 23. Okay. So still single. Now, yeah, I was still single. Yeah. But she's like, what? She's like, okay. You know, the guy's grown up. He's got his own interests. And so mm-hmm. she, she gives me this book and I unwrap it and I look at this and I'm like, oh, I was like, thanks, mom. I was like, that's, that's, that's a terrific gift. I was like, how did you come up with this book of all? And she's like, well, I asked them to show me the, you know, the books. And so, and so then of course my dad wants to see it and my sister wants to see it. And they're like, what the hell is this that you've given him? But it was, it was very funny. It was very and funny. Then your mom said, your mom said, if you don't want it, here's the receipt. And you looked, and there was actually two of them purchased. Oh, she actually bought one for herself. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um, well, let's get into it, shall we? Yeah. Okay. Question number one. Dear Dr. Todd, every once in a while, I will wet the bed. I'm an adult in my 40s. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens. I haven't been able to find a consistent reason for when it happens. Also, sometimes I wake up and have the sensation that I've wet the bed, but when I check, I haven't. What could be the reason for this? Thanks. Okay. Is, is, do you know if this person is a male or a female? Or does it not I matter? don't, and that actually crossed my mind as well. Yeah. Because I would imagine, and you obviously you know best, I would imagine this could be different for both. So I think we got to yeah. cover this as if it's, it's either one. So, you know, there's a small group of people. So this is ultimately a sleep disorder, um, meaning that, you know, people aren't aroused by the stimulus that they need to urinate. Um, and the it's not quite like night terrors, which we've talked about, but it is ultimately a sleep disorder. Um, and it typically this goes away by the time kids are eight or nine years old. Some kids, it lasts in the teenage years, a much smaller percentage that lasts in their twenties, but usually by the time they're in their twenties, um, it, it has gone away. It's sort of unusual to have it persist into the forties. Um, so number I one, I think, hmm? I don't know that it persisted, right? Oh, I, I'm. I'm wondering if it, it that my take was that it's it's come maybe it's come back or it started. Uh, I don't know that it's gone all the way to the 40s. Yeah, like consistently. That's so what I got from it. Yeah. I, so first of all, I think the simplest thing 
would be, you know, that this is, if it's something new that's come back, um, it should be, she, so it sounds like the person doesn't know why it's happening and they can't really correlate it to anything. I mean, certainly there are people, if they drink too much alcohol and they're intoxicated and they have a lot of volume in their bladder, that's one of the typical causes of this, but that that's a little less common. I mean, you have to be pretty, pretty drunk and have drank quite a bit to pee in the bed and, and not notice it, but it can happen. Um, there might be things, you know, adult onset diabetes too, where you could have more glucose in the urine and therefore more volume in the urine and the bladder, and you might urinate it at nighttime. There might be urinary tract infections. If, if it is, a, if it is a female, and you know, usually, you know, sometimes with coughing and sneezing, if people have had children, they can have some um, change in the structure of the bladder. And so with that valsalva, that pressing down of the abdomen onto the bladder, it can cause a little bit of urine to leak out. So if the person is coughing or sneezing or something in their sleep, that could be it. But I, I would say if this is something new, it should be seen by a doctor and at least at the very beginning, get a urinalysis and then the doctor can take a good history. If it's a male, I'd say it's more likely some something related to urine or prostate. Okay. Um, and that's if it's a consistent thing, right? It's not basically if you, like you said, sometimes it's you, you had too much to drink, you have extra volume in your bladder and you're still foggy. So you just don't wake up when you, you know, is there anything yeah, about I, that last I, part? Sorry. Go what's ahead. that? Was there anything about that last part that said the sensation that they've done it, but when they wake up, they haven't. That sounds more of like a sleep issue. Like it's kind of a, a, a dream like that, that sort of points in the more in the, but I don't know why someone developed that in their forties. It's not that it's impossible. I just don't know about it off the top of my head. Mm. Um, why that would start, you know, at that age. I mean, it could be related to medications possibly. I'm, I'm just not sure. This is, <laughs> I hate to say something I'd like a little bit more information about, like male or female. I'd like yeah. some, you know, to get some information about what's happening in their urine. If it's a male, I would like to know a little bit about daytime symptoms and whether there's any like of what we call urge incontinence, meaning they feel like they need to go to the bathroom and they can't make it there and they lose control of their bladder. If it's a female, I would want to know if they're having that or possibly stress incontinence, which is coughing or sneezing. And then maybe just some history about alcohol. Caffeine is a bladder irritant that I could cause this, but it's sort of unusual to start urinating in your sleep again in your forties without something new happening. It's just, there's got to be something here. Right. Okay. Well, my suggestion is a good be question. Sleep. It's a good question for a doctor. This just needs to be evaluated yeah. further. Well, no, it sounds like you kind of, you tapped into the, the overall thing. It is, it's definitely a good question, especially since it's, it's happening to somebody, but I think you gave some, some good options there. My suggestion was going to be to just put sand in your bed because sand, you know, <laughs> You have to repeat at the beach. It really absorbs it. Like a, like a litter, a litter box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a litter box, like a giant litter box. Yeah, you don't want to ruin the bed, right? Beds are expensive. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. Maybe, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea in the bed. Dimitri, yeah. I think you're funny. I, I was listening to one of these, one of our shows, and I heard myself laughing quite a bit. I was like, well, I must be entertained while we're doing this. Oh, how nice is that? Thank you for the compliment. <laughs> Let's just sit for a moment and let that soak in. I don't think Go ahead. A lot. Okay. Well, listen. So. Um, Next question is, uh, I believe next question is also, we have two audio questions today, but not, not this one yet. So next question. Dear Dr. Todd, <laughs> IYO, which is in your opinion, your, yeah. What, yeah, in your opinion, what is the best, you know, I'm, I'm a little old. In your opinion, what is the best non-medicated way to handle anxiety and depression? Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
Well, typically, so anxiety and depression can be closely related. You can be depressed with anxious mood. You can be really anxious. It doesn't necessarily come with depression that way. You know, sometimes an anxious person isn't necessarily a depressed person, but sometimes a depressed person is really anxious. And so non-medical, you know, with anxiety, I think typically the best way of dealing with anxiety is with cognitive behavioral therapy, which is essentially teaching your brain to recognize the trigger and the and the emotion of anxiety, and then learning to control your physiologic response. So for instance, somebody is going to be getting on an airplane. And actually, this is kind of an interesting one, you know, where the people are getting on an airplane, they have a lot of fear of flying and anxiety around that. And so if you were treating that with cognitive behavioral therapy, you might have some techniques that you use prior to getting on the airplane, maybe some deep breathing, some relaxation techniques. Sometimes um, a psychologist might do exposure therapy, like sort of running through the worst case scenarios of what might happen on this plane, and then sort of looking at how frequently they happen compared to other things that you do in your life, and sort of down-regulating the experience of the anxiety, because they're thinking, they're kind of thinking about going on a plane a lot, and you know, ultimately, it's like when someone puts their finger on your leg, if you, you, you'll stop feeling the sensation after a few seconds. And that's kind of what the um, exposure therapy is about. <clears throat> so, yeah. cognitive behavioral therapy is excellent for anxiety. Um, depression. Don't, don't hmm? do that. Don't put your finger on someone's leg on the plane. I think he's speaking specifically <laughs> of a, not like, yeah. don't just. Yeah. Sorry. Depression has more, um, you know, therapy, you know, what people think of as traditional talk therapy. Um, understanding if the depression is circumstantial, meaning related to what we would call um, an adjustment disorder, like a new event in your life, a death of a family member, a change of circumstances at work or in your own marriage, um, an event in your family, an illness, etc. And then, <clears throat> you know, so really talk therapy is about identifying the source of the problem, thinking about solutions. And ultimately, what depression is, is not being able to see a path forward. It's just sort of this overwhelming sensation that you're stuck. And it makes people, there's lots of animal models for depression. Um, <clears throat> and ultimately, when people or animals can't, they get variable rewards. They, they try and exercise a few different times, not a physical exercise, but maybe trying to get, you know, sugar water out of the tap and the re traditional rat exercise. And if you shut the thing off, and they can't get any sugar water out. Eventually, they'll just become depressed, but they'll get over it if, if no sugar water comes out. Oh. But the sugar water comes out periodically, and they have no idea when it's going to come out and when it's not. They typically get depressed, and it's very hard to get them out of it. So I would say really? for the I would say for depression and anxiety, the really talk therapy is excellent. CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is particularly good for anxiety and good you know talk therapy. Is, yeah. is typically good for depression, but it, it's, it's challenging. I've got some thoughts here, Dr. Todd. Yes. So obviously I stumbled on that question because it said 
I-Y-O. So I'm assuming this is a younger person because it was short for <laughs> in your opinion. Right. So I'm assuming, it's, and, and I, so they don't want to take medications, right? So it seems they're probably kind of struggling with that, that maybe they have some anxiety that if I start taking medications, it's going to alter me a different way and this and that. Right. Understandable. So a couple thoughts here, though. You said, um, there was one thing you pointed out. Uh, well, actually, I saw recently that someone said, it was on, it was like, not TikTok, but they said, if you put your finger is there a nerve that runs through the bottom of your ear? They said, if you put your finger in your ear and press down and take a deep breath, that that mm -hmm. calms you down. So if you're getting anxious, that's a great cure for anxiety. Well, there's the trigeminal nerve that kind of runs through there and the facial nerve. But I don't know why it would calm you down. Maybe there's – that's maybe more of an acupuncture question, oh, okay. like if there's a pressure point there. But yeah. I don't know medically why that would calm you down. It's basically right here, like where my AirPod is. If that wasn't there, just put your finger there and, and kind of pull down a little bit and hold it and take some deep breaths. But that's the other point is that people always say that's the the basic thing is always take a deep breath, take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. And I think that's pro that's similar to what you were saying is that that's always should always be the first step, right? When you start getting yeah. anxious or something, take yeah. a deep breath. So, you know, it's, you know, what I talk to people a lot about is that number one, when people are anxious and they're sort of perseverating on an event in their life, you know, the, it's very anxiety provoking when you're trying to see the future, like right. what's going to happen. I mean, I do this in my own life, but, you know, so trying to keep people in the present. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the military about, you know, when they're when things are super chaotic in um, <clears throat> real life war situations. You know, how do they keep these soldiers calm and, and making relatively good decisions? And one of them is just sort of staying in the present, not trying to think two steps ahead. Um, this, the second is like focusing on the things that you can do well, you know, I mean, literally like I've heard these stories of these military guys saying, you know, the situation felt really out of control and they just didn't know what to do. And they literally just laced up their shoes again, made sure their shoes were laced up properly and perfectly. And then they moved on to the next task. Like what, what's the next thing I need to do here? And then because the there's a lot of. Sorry, mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff out of your control, right? So the basic right. core of that is control what you can. Control what you can, be in the present. And then the third thing that I think that people, um, this is actually particularly good for depression, is that when people can help other people, um, service, or even just like, you know, helping the person out next to you, it helps you. And so lots of times when I have people struggling with depression and anxiety, I do try and say to them, I know you don't have the energy and it feels like a lot to put out right now. But I think if you volunteer on a consistent basis, and an altruistic project that will help you. And it's very hard to imagine giving anything to another person when you feel like you don't have a lot to give, but when you actually can, it's very, um, it's very cathartic and healing for people. So I, I try to get people with depression and anxiety involved with service because I think it's really helpful for them. That's a that's that's a great advice. And I'll say you, earlier you said, um, you know, when you're getting on a plane, think of like the what's the worst case scenario, and then walk it back from that. I also learned at one point. Think of the worst case scenario, then think of the best case scenario, right? Open up your mind as to not everything's negative. Don't just get stuck in that negative alley, right? There's there's the positive. There. What's the best case? that, And then what's the most average thing that could happen? And that then you're kind of doing a little checks and balances there. Um, yeah. And, I and, think, and, you know, the exposure therapy that I was talking about is so fascinating because you think if someone is like terrified of plane crashes and you're showing them lots of videos of plane crashes and they're writing about plane crashes and thinking about plane crashes and you know, that's what the, th the exposure therapy is. And it sounds really barbaric, but it's incredible how effective it is. Yeah. And these, you know, folks will 
um, you know, be watching videos on YouTube and they'll be listening to survivor tales of plane crashes. But it's just that sort of stimulus down regulates their response eventually. I, eventually, I think that's that. See, this is still it's a little puzzling to me because, like, when people saw the movie Jaws, they were afraid to go in the ocean, right? But I guess th- eventually is is the key word there. Um, and I, I think if they watch Jaws every day for a month, and they watch lots of other shark videos, and talk to shark specialists, and talk to even people who'd survived shark bites and all these things, it would sort of, to some degree reinforce their fears, but it's not like you can do it by yourself. You have to do it with a trained therapist who takes you through this process ah. of down-regulating that response to the exposure. That makes sense because I once watched Christmas Vacation every day for a month, but I still have phobia of my entire family coming over and staying with me. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, a funny movie. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to say here was, no. um, because then we really got to get on to the other questions, yeah. was a lot of the, the other thing I think about, because you can talk about talk therapy and talking things out and stuff like that. I think it's important to remember that I always say this. That's why when kids have extracurricular activities with like a different group, like club sports or something, mm-hmm. I think it helps because I think people get so caught up under a microscope about their world. And they think that the one thing that happens is their entire future and it's the entire world, right? Yes. So when you have another outlet right. and you have other people that didn't see you fall down at school today or didn't you see you screw up at work today like whatever it may be when when that's all you have you think that's your entire life and that's the way it's going to be forever so when you have other outlets i think that helps to to make takes you out from underneath the microscope and helps you realize that life is so much more than this silly moment at this moment at this time in my life right yeah we i mean i realize we have more questions so i'm not even going to expand on that but i would say that what the point that you just made about kind of recognizing that there's lots of people in this world other than you and the people are going through similar stuff and is 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 kind of the center of the mental health crisis for kids right now who are isolated and spending too much time on their screens and not enough out in the world doing things. Mm-hmm. All right. Great. Uh, that's good stuff. Um, let's go on to the next one. The next one is an audio question. Audio Daily Double. Take it. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Todd. Um I'm calling because I find myself aroused by what some people might consider as risky sex. Mm-hmm. It's not dangerous. I'm not talking about dangerous sex. I never feel in danger. It always feels consensual, but I guess it's just more like exciting scenarios or just the idea of having the type of sex that I shouldn't be having. Uh, it feels like super secretive and taboo. And it's, it's thrilling when I'm able to sit at the dinner table in public and uh, brush my knee up against someone else and nobody else knows, or like, I don't know, gra- grab his inner thigh. Um, I'm wondering if it's normal to fantasize about sex with other people that are not my partner. I'm really, here's, here's my thing. Is monogamy a normal thing? Is that something that changes? Should I be considered as an addict at this point because of kind of all of these thrills and needs that I'm having? And what does it mean to be monogamous? Am I capable of monogamy? Um, Thank you. Wow. It's a lot to unpack. Yes. I did not listen to that question. (laughs) This must be our, well, listen, great delivery of the question. Um, it sounds like they were maybe like hiding in a bathroom or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, well, first of all, nothing I heard there sounds abnormal at all. I think it actually sounds very healthy. And um, I think, you know, probably a less 
healthy version of that question is someone who's detached and unaroused by sexual activity or, you know, situations that they're just like, that's, that's a harder thing to deal with. What she's talking about is actually is just her personal preference. And I think that question she asked about is monogamy normal or not? That's a, you know, there's a lot of stuff right now about polyamory. Um, I'm actually reading a book right now. that's a memoir of a polyamorous woman who's about my age, uh, who was in New York and has kids about my kid's age. And Did your mom buy it, it for you? <laughs> no, no. I uh, read a New Yorker book review of it. I was like, that sounds kind of interesting. So I started reading it and it's actually quite interesting because it's her story. And everyone thinks of polyamory as sex with lots of partners, but hers is much more of a psychologic journey of what that polyamory was like and how she got involved with it. And then, of course, like, you know, her husband and his relation to it and her, you know, her sort of going through how she got there with her therapist. And so I think to this woman's question, what is her, she, it was, this is anonymous, right? Yeah. She definitely yeah. did not give a name. Oh, and yeah. I think, I think everything reasons. I'm hearing is normal. I think mm -hmm. that, you know, it's, everybody's a little bit different in, in terms of what works for them. I think in the gay community, Monogamy is less common than it is in the heterosexual community. It's much more widely accepted. I, I think that's a stereotype, but I also think it's largely true because they're sort of outside of the confines of the traditional male-female marriage. And so some of the other confines of relationship have also, that are less convenient, have been mm -hmm. eschewed. You know, there's religious overtones to monogamy. And, you know, I, I have my own personal perspectives on it, but I I would say to someone who is thinking of exploring polyamory or having sex outside of a monogamous relationship is that it, there needs to be a lot of transparency and a lot of communication and everybody needs to be on the same page or it can be disruptive. If everybody's on the same page and it's working and you know what you're doing, people can be very successful and it can lead to a very fulfilling and great marriage. I have, I have no reservations or problems with it. Whether it's for me or not, I don't know. I, I am a little bit more traditional of a person. And it would be hard to, to visualize that. Mm -hmm. But other people grew up in a setting where it was much more acceptable and it makes sense and it works for them. And by all means, it's normal. Yeah. I think, um, like I said, that, that kind of came in. I did not hear that question before. The producers just said, hey, we got an extra audio question we're going to put in the show. And so I did, that's why it kind of caught me off guard. There was a lot of explanation in there. Um, and it kind of meandered, but it was actually great storytelling because there was yes. one point she was talking about how she's aroused when she can like bump legs with somebody or put her hand on their leg. And while like at the table when other people aren't aware and I thought, okay, so she's getting aroused by that. But then she, but then immediately jumped into, uh, is it weird to fantasize about people that aren't your partner? So then I, that's where I got a little thrown off by this. No. And I wasn't sure if she's talking about is her arousal cheating scenarios is it all with somebody else? Is is she then doing this with someone? Else? And which again, fine. What you you do you, um, whatever whatever it is. But I'm just trying to to figure that out. If, if that's yeah. what this was, if it was just an arousal thing, like maybe she's not happy in her situation, or or I don't know. Yeah, no, and I think that uh, I I think what she's asking is this normal. My answer is yes, and I think that. What is hard actually is when people don't feel comfortable asking that question or exploring that conversation with a spouse mm -hmm. and because um, they're worried about judgment or they're worried about the implications. And I think that 
anybody who's been in a long-term relationship at some point will have these questions. Whether they act on them or whether they talk to them about their spouse is another thing. But I, I do encourage people to sort of explore this conversation with their spouse. One, because it's, it's, it's something. I mean, look, you're both invested in a project, which is a long-term relationship. And I don't say spouse. I partner, whatever. Just, you know, long-term or anybody in a relationship. I mean, I think if you're in a relationship with someone for four weeks and you start talking about, you know, having an open relationship, there may not be the trust or um, experience in the relationship to really have it be successful. Um, yeah. But I do think that once the foundations of the relationship are established and there's trust in people, you know, everybody, you know, everybody sort of experiences sex differently and the value that they tie to it in terms of what they need in terms of their, their primary relationship, you know, who's to say what's good and bad. So I, yeah. I just, I, I recommend people communicate about it. Nothing I'm hearing in this question sounds abnormal. I would say you sound very healthy and, you know, keep doing just uh Make sure you're communicating with your partner about how you're feeling and so that that's they know, truly know who you are, not that you're that's hiding something. Yeah. I want to yeah. let, uh, I think it's a good news and I think it's a good thing that your wife sent that in. And listen, help <laughs> is on the way. He's reading a book about, about uh, extra partners. So right. help is on the way. It's everywhere. There's so much, there's, I don't know, there's something right now and maybe it's coming out of COVID, but I mean, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in magazines and books and memoirs and I'm. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't sound like anything she was doing was she was that thing that you often have mentioned that, that can be unhealthy where it's like, I watch a lot of porn and then this is what I want. Like it didn't sound like it was that. It just sounded like she's discovering, you know, discovering yeah. what 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 excites her, which is good, right? I, I will clarify, I also don't have any problem with people watching porn. Well, I have yeah. a problem with teenagers thinking that porn is real life and then trying to reenact what they're seeing on the screen or feeling inferior because they're not a porn star. Correct. Yes. You, you have mentioned that you're okay with porn a few times yeah. and yeah, that is correct. That is I like to, <laughs> very specific. You, you're right though. That, that is a very important point. Okay. Yeah. Let's keep moving on. Let's go on to the next question. Hi, Dr. Todd. It's Maggie. I have a question about dairy and lactose intolerance. It seems like I have more trouble handling milk and dairy products as I get older. Is it possible that I'm suddenly lactose intolerant? Thanks so much. I will say, yes, that is possible. And sometimes lactose intolerance, like if you don't eat a lot of milk and dairy and then you, you know, eat a bunch of ice cream, you know, you may not have enough lactase, which is the enzyme in your stomach that breaks down lactose, which is the, you know, primary, um, sugar in, uh, milk. And, um, yeah, I think it's possible. Sometimes after a gastroenteritis, people get a transitory lactose taste deficiency because it just kind of gets all washed out with the diarrhea and it takes a while for their body to start producing it. But the, the short answer to the question is yes, it is possible to develop it later in life. There, you know, some people tolerate dairy great, others don't. Fortunately, there's lots of great milk substitutes, um, lots of oat milks and almond milks. And I don't even know what other kind of milks there are now, but none of those conflict with dairy and uh, people, people, you know, can live a nice, healthy life. And there are, if you want to take something like lactase pills prior to a dairy containing drink or meal, that will help too, which is actually lactase, the enzyme, you can take it prior to eating dairy if, if you're bothered by it. Well, I, That's I, over the counter. That, it's nothing. Yeah. Prescription. I think that's good advice. I think um, I'm actually 
I was actually surprised that you said you can develop it later. But my mm -hmm. thing is that I think this stems down to, uh, yes, no one wants to have diarrhea, right? So I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not lactose intolerant. So I'm not, but I think a lot of people think that diarrhea is such a major problem. Do you know how many people have told me that they're lactose intolerant that haven't been in the past? So you're now pointing out that they can be, which great. That's, that's very, not great. You know what I mean? It's very possible that, that you can develop that. I didn't know that. But I think as soon as people get diarrhea because they had like an ice cream cone, I think they automatically say they're lactose intolerant. And I think that's kind of like, you know, and like I said, no one wants to have diarrhea, but let's not make it such a, a negative Giant, this sounds weird now, but a, a, a giant thing like such a, I, oh my God, I can't have dairy anymore because I, because something, maybe it was the, the giant bowl of Brussels sprouts you had before you had an ice cream sundae. I don't know. And that was mixed. I don't know. But what I'm saying is settle down with the self-diagnosis that, oh my God, I have this. It's like diarrhea is something. Back me up on this, Dr. Todd. Diarrhea is something that people get. That's sometimes just something that people get. Well, I do feel like a little bit like I'm on an SNL skit. I was trying to keep track of how many times you said diarrhea in that question. <laughs> and it just kept coming actually, out. Most of the time, what we'll see with lactase deficiency or um, lactose intolerance is gas and bloating. And we will see diarrhea as well. But um, yeah, you know, people, you know, ultimately, you know, some people's stomachs are, or intestines are more sensitive than others. And Yes, you can get transient intolerances to different stuff, but I agree. I, I think if you, you know, if you eat ice cream and then you get diarrhea one time, you don't need to tell everyone you're lactose intolerant. Um, Thank you. you. Know. Yes. So, Dimitri, I appreciate your your position on the pro lactose. Thank you. And, if you uh, want, Doctor Todd, this seems like a good point time to point this out. If you want me to come down to work to come to work with you and just sit there on the side and kind of interject while you're talking with your patients and give this other perspective, I'm more than happy to do it. You know what? That would be really fun. <laughs> like I could just say, Demetri, does this cause diarrhea? Yeah, yeah. And I'll be like, well, here's the deal. So you got a little diarrhea. Don't worry about it. That reminds me. I have a funny diarrhea story about my sister one time, but that's for another episode. I'm not going to do it now because we're short on time. In okay. fact, we have one more question. Do you want to take a shot at it or do you want to save it for next week? Why don't we save it for next week? I think we've okay. talked about it. But that. I know people, we did this once before, and I want you to know all the questions. I'm going to say this question is about, um, it just says, my butt never feels clean, I believe is what that's what yeah, the I don't think thing we can. I, I don't think we can answer that quickly. Yes, that's the, what I have on a little screen from the producer. So we're going to bump, bump the butt uh, to next week. But we, I promise, we'll get to it. Um, great questions this week, I think, and some you know some real solid answers both from Dr. Todd and you know, listen, not, <laughs> not awful on my end. Maybe, maybe my giant litter box wasn't the best idea, but whatever. This is it's this. There's no wrong answers in a brainstorm. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, medicine isn't as much about brainstorming as it's kind of practice and but podcasts yeah. are <laughs> okay. um dr todd's rx listen you wet the bed it's a little weird if it kicks in in your 40s and you didn't have it before so kind of talk to your doctor and get that checked out but otherwise there are some reasons why it could be happening nothing necessarily to uh to stress about uh speaking of stress uh anxiety and depression it happens uh, i know you said you don't want to take medication there are some things you can that you can um, look into. And we've talked about some things and a lot of these things do help. It's just a matter of, of trying them and being consistent about them. When all else fails, take a deep breath. 
uh, risky sex. Uh, Dr. Todd said there's nothing wrong with it. Again, not dangerous sex, risky sex. Um, find out what works for you. Just if you have a partner, be open about it, uh, about what you're doing. But listen, there's nothing wrong with being aroused. And um, dairy and lactose intolerance, it can develop later in life. But as uh, as I pointed out, don't just jump to the conclusion that you're lactose intolerant. Don't cut yourself off from a delicious ice cream sundae just because of a little once-in-a-lifetime diarrhea. So um, hang in there. And the last question, um, we'll, we'll, what we're going to bump to next week. Dr. Todd, as always, you're much appreciated. You too, Dimitri. Los Angeles Magazine, you are extremely appreciated. Thank you for giving us the uh, platform. We hope you're making we're making you happy, and it seems like people are uh, listening and and interacting. So let's uh, let's keep it up until next week. Adios. Thank you for listening to the Is This Odd Dr. Todd program from Los Angeles Magazine Studios. If you have any medical questions and want to hear from Dr. Todd, be sure to email podcasts at lamag.com. Oh,